You'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Things are very chipper this morning. Title of our sermon is Death Comes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26. Key words for our worshipers in training are folly, wisdom, and death. Now, before I start, I want to exhort all of us. I'm pleading with you to hang on with me to the very end this morning. Because we're going to walk with Solomon and he's going to bring us into a pit of utter despair. And if you don't hang on with me, then you're going to be left with that. We're going to end this thing well, I promise. So hold on to the end. But I do want to begin with all of us thinking about the first time we had to deal with the reality of death in our life. I had a few thoughts as I was going through this, several different things that have gone on in my life that have brought me closer to the understanding of death. Now, the first one was as a little boy with a BB gun living in the country. We had rabbits in Colorado. I don't see many here, but they were all over the place. And we had plants around our yard, and my parents didn't want the rabbits up in everything that they were doing. And so I took it upon myself to be the great protector of our plants. And so I would go outside and find the rabbits and take aim with my BB gun. Well, no one told me that in order to kill a rabbit, you should actually use pellets or bullets and not BBs. So... uh, I had to take several shots at a rabbit in order to kill it. I remember the first time I killed a rabbit to stand over the top of it and watch it whimper and die. Nine, ten years old. It's quite a sight. It's quite a shock to the system to see one minute there's life and there's vigor and the next minute there is death. Things got more serious, of course, as I thought about death. When I was 12 years old, it was the first time I ever saw my father cry. My uncle Chuck was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And all they told us was he might die in two years. He might die in 20 years. Reality struck. Death is coming. It was 12 years. He died 12 years later. And as we watched that disease progress in his body and in his life, it became more and more real that eventually he would die. First family member of mine to die. And then I was in the military And everything in my training, everything in our preparation was to either kill or capture someone or to keep your buddies from dying. A big reality. And before they send you off to combat, you spend your time squaring away your life insurance policy and your living will and testament when you're 20 years old. And then in my first year of ministry, 
I remember going to the home of a sick woman and visiting her, and the very next day she died in that very house, in that very bed I saw her in only hours before. And so I went, and the funeral director showed up at the house, and he didn't have anyone with him, and he gave me a pair of gloves to help him carry her body out of the house. The first time I touched a dead body, And so as I think about these things, and as I read the newspaper day in and day out and scan the obituaries every now and then, the reality is very clear to me that we will die. And remember 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at, Paul said that death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. Death is the result of sin. Do not eat of the tree of the garden in, uh, in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. Death came into the world as a result of one sin and has been affecting us ever since. Death is real. Death comes. And so as we've seen so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is doing this grand experiment. He's experimented in wisdom and education and folly and comedy and wine and parties and luxury and gardening and materialism and sex and laziness. And now he gets to the issues of death and toil. We're going to look at these in detail this morning. So let's look at verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So we see Solomon here going back again to wisdom and folly. Remember in chapter 1 in verse 13, he said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he's going back again to something that he already examined, something he already looked at. It's sort of like going from the refrigerator to the pantry and you don't find anything there. And so what do you do? You go back to the refrigerator again. Perhaps there's something missing, right? So we look in the most logical places. And when that fails, we start looking elsewhere. Maybe it's behind, maybe something behind the jar of pickles next to the mayonnaise. Something is there but we still can't find it. Maybe I missed something. I should go back where I started. I should look more carefully. So Solomon is doing this. He's going back to consider wisdom and folly yet again. So he writes wisdom and madness and folly. Now these words, madness and folly, they go together. They're not three categories here. He's talking about two. Wisdom... And here he's talking about human thinking at its best. The best that human mind and ingenuity can come to. 
Not the wisdom of Proverbs that begins with the fear of the Lord, but rather good, practical, daily life wisdom of the world, the common sense. On the other hand, he's speaking of madness and folly. Literally, we can translate that, mad folly. So he pursued pleasure, and he's reconsidering wisdom and mad folly. He wants to compare the two and study the difference and see if he understands the meaning of life. But will all, he will now also be confronted with another reality that comes to all of this, and that is death. So Solomon very clearly wants to make sure that he is considered life from every conceivable angle that he could possibly look at from his perspective. So here's the setup to this passage. I've sought wisdom, I've known mad folly, and in the end, no matter which I pursue, the results are the same. Death. Death comes. Second part of verse 12 For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. What can be done that I haven't already pursued myself? I've done a very thorough experiment with life here. Nothing else can be studied. Nothing else can be tried. So what does he conclude? Look on to verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Okay, so if nothing else, at least we can conclude it is far better to have wisdom than it is to have folly. So going through life with the ability to see in the light is far greater than running blind in the darkness. He's saying, I've tried it all. Trust me. Knowing a little something about something is better than knowing nothing about anything. There is some gain here in life. But remember what he said at the end of chapter 1 and verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so it's not the end-all, be-all. Having wisdom is not the great end to it all. It, too, brings much vexation. It, too, increases sorrow. And yet, nevertheless, it beats madness. It beats folly. It beats a silliness or weakness of the mind. So here's Solomon's wisdom for us here. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your pursuits. And if you do, you might be able to avoid some folly, some foolishness, some sort of consequences. These things that are sure to come as a result of pursuing life without wisdom. If you take notice, if you pay attention to your life, you might avoid some of the harder outcomes of foolish living. This is wisdom. He's wise. He has seen it all. And that's tough to argue with whether or not you're godly. It's hard to argue with the reality that we ought to take inventory of our lives to see the consequences of our actions and seek to avoid certain ones. So finally, we get to a point where it seems that Solomon is starting to make a little bit of sense to us. 
He's putting the pieces together and drawing some conclusions that make sense. But then there's this great obstacle that he is confronted with. He is confronted with the reality of death. Verse 14, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the foolish. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So here we see it. The great equalizer death. So Solomon considers everything. He examines his life. He sets himself to reject folly and pursue wisdom. And then he realizes, wait, I'm going to die just like every other idiot in the world. I've experimented, I've learned, I've gained, I've accumulated, and then I get buried next to a complete moron and have no say in it whatsoever. It's done. It's over. So here's where it gets real sobering, because I've been bringing glad tidings so far, right? You and I will die. I will probably preach some of your funerals. Or perhaps some of you will attend my funeral. We're dying. There is no way around it. And so it dawns on Solomon at this point, I'm dying. I'm headed for the grave. Now I suspect that most of us don't live life with this reality in focus that we don't often consider the reality that there is a very near finish line to each and every one of us. Most of us don't anticipate death because we're mostly young and healthy for the most part. It seems like it's not going to happen to us. We just sort of forget about it. But it will. So I want us to think hard about that. What does life look like when I realize that I might die tomorrow? What if instead of ignoring that reality, we thought about it? We dwelt on that a bit more, the reality of our coming death. Listen, I I have to remind myself all the time, you can eat all the organic foods you want, You can get as much exercise as you want. You can look for cures for all of your elements. And this is all good and right and appropriate because it's the common grace of God who gives those things to us. But you are not invisible. You will die. So think death tomorrow. What does time with your kids look like now? What does time with your wife or your husband look like now? How important do those extra hours at work seem now? How meaningful are your cheap thrills and your possessions and your clothes and your hair and your mutual funds now? Now listen, again, I'm not saying these things are evil and they don't, or or to not have them. 
I'm saying we all probably think a bit more, that these things are a bit more important than they actually are when in reality we're all going to die very soon. In Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, he resolved to think of his own death often and the circumstances therein. He wanted right relationships and a right standing before God. And he, he found that the frequent consideration of his own death led to a greater pursuit of things that mattered the most, the things of God. And as a result, we have one of the greatest minds that America has ever produced. So now that we're all smiling and happy, Solomon jumps into a pretty hopeless despair. Look at verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. How's that for one of the most humbling Bibles, uh, verses in the Bible? You think you're important? You think you're special? You think you're great? Well, even the wise are forgotten after their death. Sure, I'll give you, you may have your name in a history book. Someone might write a biography about you. But you personally... How you laugh, how the veins in your neck pop out when you get frustrated, how your hair looks in the morning, all of that gone. Some of you might not want to be remembered by that. Wise or foolish, hard worker or lazy slob, it's all the same, remembered, no more. So how does Solomon feel about this? Verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So Solomon, like the Rolling Stones, as we talked about a few weeks ago, was grieved that he just can't get no satisfaction. His soul cannot be satisfied. But then that moves on to frustration. Now we we know from the scriptures that after Solomon was king, the nation of Israel just crumbled. And so here we see Solomon looking at his sons and realizing that all that he has worked hard at to see that Israel is wealthy and powerful as he is leading them. He looks at his boys and he realizes this ship is going down. 
I have managed this thing well. I have pursued all of this for my own gain. I have lived my life in a way that I have sought my own pleasure. I've invested none of this wisdom in my sons. This is going down. And it does. This is exactly what happens. So Solomon is completely frustrated because he's powerless to control the outcome of all of his toil. He worked and he worked and he worked. He obtained, he achieved, he built, he acquired, he managed. All for what? These guys are going to mess it all up and I can't do anything about it. So what is Solomon left with? Despair. He's left with despair. I want to give you an illustration for this, and you know it's compelling because it's football, and I hate football. So it's important. Now, I think throughout history, young, there's been young promising individuals who by the world's standards have everything that they could have ever hoped for and dreamed of. And yet they look at it all in despair. An example of that, in 2007, 60 Minutes did an interview on CBS with a quarterback named Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady was a three-time Super Bowl champion quarterback with the New England, New England Patriots. I'm having to read this because I'm clueless. Now, Tom Brady was a football legend already. At the time of the interview, his team was 15-0, and and he was to finish the season undefeated, the first time in 35 years. He won Super Bowl MVP twice. He was named to the Pro Bowl four times. The Associated Press rated him the male athlete of the year. He dated actresses and supermodels, and he made millions of dollars every single year and was called America's most eligible bachelor. Here's what he said in his interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The reporter asked him, what's the answer? He responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Wow. So, what's going to perk him up? A new cell phone? (laughs) A new iPad? A new car? A bigger house? He got to the end of it all and he said, despair. He entered into despair that fame and fortune and achievement could no longer numb. Like Solomon, Brady thought that he did it all and was left in despair, chewing on the bone. I've achieved it. I've done it. I've accomplished it. And now Solomon realizes too, I I have to leave it all to my idiot sons. And nothing is going to come of it. It will all crumble. It is all meaningless. 
Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He's working. He's doing good things. He continues to accumulate. He continues to add to his dream. And every night as his head hits the pillow, he thinks something is wrong. I wish I knew the answer. I think there is a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. So what about you? What does your mind go to when all is silent and you're left with nothing more than your thoughts? Financial woes? Relational problems? Anxieties at work? Whatever that default is, that's what we're toiling after, to bring us rest. Those are the if-only things in our life. If only this was better, according to my standards. If only I could do this greater. This is the time of each day when we consider what we think is going to provide some kind of lasting meaning. Like Solomon, we're all asking, is there an answer? Is it all just hopeless? So here's Solomon's despair. The wise die and have to leave all that they've accomplished to others. And will they be wise? Who knows? Who knows? So the result is grief, despair, sorrow, burdens, and restlessness, sleeplessness, because he cannot rest constantly on his mind. So Solomon turns his heart to despair. He despairs of any way out under the sun. Just as he previously gave way to pleasure, now he gives way to despair. But he doesn't leave it there, thankfully. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So is there any hope? Are there any answers? Is all of this hopeless? Two parts to his answer. First part. There is nothing within our souls that will bring us lasting, fulfilling, sustaining enjoyment on this earth. We looked at that very closely last week. Evidence, exhibit A, is every one of us in this room. Every one of us, myself included, succumbs from time to time, to the ridiculous philosophy that we will be more satisfied, we will find more lasting joy in having more of what we already have. So we get more. We get the latest, we get the greatest, we get the biggest, we get the baddest. New gadgets, new clothes, new golf clubs, new fishing gear, new car stereos, new flooring in our house. Again, is any of this wrong or evil? No. But if we're all honest, I know that any of us can admit we're looking for joy in these things and we will never find it. Is there anything in this world that sustains us forever? Nothing. 
nothing will do. You will want more of it, period. Okay, so the second part of his answer. Is there any hope? All that Solomon has experimented in has left him at an impasse. But, it's very important after bringing us to this pit of despair. An impasse for men is not an impasse for God. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Whether you recognize it or not, all that you have is a gift from God. The food you eat, the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, the roof that you live under, all of this is God's gift to you. And God gives abundant gifts to all of mankind. But, and here's Solomon's point, only the children of God can enjoy the gifts that God gives rightly. And let me explain it like this. I'm just examining my own life. I have a lot of nice things. I have a nice house on a cul-de-sac with mostly green grass. I have two cars that run well. I have an Amazon Kindle. I have a 24-inch computer monitor. I have a slowly improving golf game. I have a smartphone, and up until about a week and a half ago, I had a 160-gigabyte iPod that was stolen from my car. Now, add to that my precious, beautiful family, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my wonderful neighbors, my good health, and my very thick hair. I am very blessed. (laughs) Now, any single one of these things has the ability to derail me. Because I stop looking at resources to enjoy and steward for kingdom purposes to bring glory to God. And instead, I look to them for my ultimate joy and satisfaction. And this goes for every single one of us. I'm just trying to be honest with you about myself, my own heart, my own possessions. If I can't look at all of this and say, big deal. There's a problem. Look, God has been very gracious and merciful to us. But if we are truly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if He is our ultimate treasure, all those things matter very little in comparison. Very little. As Christians, our hope, our joy, our identity is not tied to our stuff. Our joy and our stuff are two separate things. They shall never be united. So we don't rise and fall on the accumulation and loss of trinkets and toys, but instead we rest in Christ alone, in Him alone. Look again at verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Nothing within man allows him to enjoy his creature comforts. The food I eat, the beverage I drink, the clothes I wear, none of it is fully enjoyed apart from God because it's an end in itself. So instead of seeing it as a means to make me more thankful in Christ, 
as a means to bring greater glory to God, it becomes its own end. And that's tragic. That is tragic. Instead, we must look to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's the deal. The majority of people think that people and things and circumstances or events exist to make us happy. So when we're not happy, who's to blame? Well, people and things and circumstances, right? So if we're not seeking our joy in Christ alone, I assure you, your life is full of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and materialism. And you're probably either a workaholic or incredibly lazy. It's played out every single day. A guy has a good job, a nice house, a fancy car, a beautiful family, and he still has something gnawing away at his soul. What could it be? Certainly couldn't be me. So I blame others. I work harder to earn more, to get more, to fill the void with more. And someone or something is supposed to make me happy, but it's not. So I push people away and I pull stuff in tighter only to eventually realize that it's not getting better, it's actually getting worse. Listen, it is important to fill the void. but not with people and things. It is impossible to fill the void with people and things. The only way the void is filled is with Jesus. And if your pursuit of ultimate joy is anything other than Jesus, you will have very unfulfilling, very frustrating returns in your life. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So lasting fulfillment, lasting joy is for those who please God. So you should be asking a really big question right now. What pleases God? If this is the means to pleasure, if this is the means to enjoyment, what pleases God? And it's incredibly important that we answer this correctly because it's the difference between eternal life and death. Now, the vast majority of Americans, and dare I say, those who profess faith in Christ, will answer this by saying, what pleases God is that I'm a good person and I do good things. And as long as I do more good things than bad things, God is pleased with me and will therefore grant me riches and eternal life. Now, there's a pseudo-Christian version of this as well, and it's called moralism. It's the same idea, but it involves different activities. It looks like God is pleased with me when I read my Bible and I pray and I teach Sunday school and I fast and I share the gospel with everyone I encounter and I wear an I Heart Jesus t-shirt and say bless her heart instead of I really hate that woman. Okay, I'm not saying spiritual disciplines are a bad thing or we shouldn't do them. They're a good thing and we must do them if we're growing in Christ. But doing them 
is not what pleases God. He doesn't need me to read my Bible. He doesn't need me to validate Him. Spiritual disciplines are not for God's benefit. They are for my benefit. So I do them not to please God, but to have greater union and communion with God myself. And so if you're truly a child of God, God is pleased with you already. God delights in you if you are a child of God. He is 100% irrevocably for you when you are his child. How so? Imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin that I might become the righteousness of God. We must preach ourselves that every day. Because when God the Father looks to me, he doesn't see me as me. He sees Christ in me and on me and around me and through me. And so his delight is not in me as me. His delight is in his son. This is me being justified, you being justified by faith apart from works of the law. So when a Christian sins... God hates the sin as much as we ought to, but he's not glaring at you and shiting you and angry with you. He's still pleased, not because of you, but because of Christ in you. There's a huge difference. So what pleases God? Christ. That's it. So how do we get in on that? By grace, through faith. Repenting and believing the gospel. Okay, I wish we could leave it there, but that's not all that Solomon says to wrap this up. Look at the end of verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon brings this thing full circle. Those who please God will be filled with knowledge and wisdom and joy. But for the sinner, he is called upon to accumulate loads of stuff, to rake in those gifts from God into heaps and piles. But in the end, he who dies with the most toys is dead. So who enjoys it? What good is it? Only the godly man enjoys it. Outside of Christ, you may do and create many great things, but only godly men and women can enjoy them because it's not an end in itself, but a means to point to everlasting joy in Christ. So here's what I want to tell the Tom Brady's of the world. Death comes to each and every one of us. You will die. I will die. It might be in the next hour. It might be in 70 years, but we are going to die. We need to consider that reality more often. 
And then and only then will we realize there's more to life than great success. There is God. And until you come to know him, your heart will never be satisfied, no matter how many Super Bowl rings you have. So let's be honest. Let's think, um, let's think a little bit more and dig in a little bit more to the something more for which we've been created. Let's humble ourselves before Jesus Christ. And if this is not you who's doing this, who's banking on Jesus, repent of your sin. Run to the cross. Trust in Christ. Only Christ can make you right with God. And then and only then will your heart find rest. Will your heart find the joy that it craves. Only then will all the vanity of the world have meaning, have purpose, have reason. Because it's found in delighting in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that you have brought death to death. And that in Christ, we pass from this world, our toil ends. Our striving ceases, and yet we go on forever with Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we need not strive after your favor on our own, that we need not fulfill things and do things and seek to do more good than bad things but that we as your children can rest fully in the finished, completed work of Christ. How freeing that is. And thank you for in this, O Lord, that you have freed us to enjoy the great gifts of this life, not as an end in themselves, but that we look beyond them to the creator of all things. That we delight in you, that we rest in you, we find our purpose and our meaning and our hope in you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the challenge to take inventory of our lives, to hang up meaningless things, to pursue Christ with all that we are for all that he is. Because in him and him alone will we find lasting enjoyment. Help us, Lord, to live in light of the reality that we will die. Help us live each day in light of eternity, that we not waste a minute, that we not waste our days, that we not waste our years but that we strive with all that we are in this vapor of a life to make much of Jesus and to see his name hallowed among the nations. Let that be our great purpose and pursuit in this life for your glory and for our lasting, ultimate, satisfying 
joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.